Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So have you ever wondered if your company is a little too dependent on a key supplier? That's a situation a guy named Rick Day found himself in. So Rick ran a successful business, built it up to $26 million in sales over a 17-year run, and sold it successfully. The only challenge he had in the sale was that the business had become way too dependent on a single supplier, Avaya, the telephony business. And when Rick went to sell the company, he had to take a bit of a haircut on the value because, again, the acquirer looked at the business and said it was way too reliant on Avaya. It's really important when you think about the value of your company to remember what we call the Switzerland structure, which evaluates your company's dependency on any one supplier, customer, or employee. The most valuable businesses are independent of any one customer, employer, supplier. And to measure your score and see how you're doing on this factor we call the Switzerland structure, I want to invite you to get your Value Builder score. If you want to get your score, go to valuebuildersystem.com. Here's Rick Day. Rick Day, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so listen, tell me a little bit about this company, Daycom. What, what kind of business were you guys? Um, it, well, we, we actually started off uh, in the secondary market or used uh, telecom equipment market, but after 17 years, we were quite a different company, and we became the largest uh, reseller and installer uh, and maintainer of Avaya large business telephone systems and equipment and software um, located on the West Coast in uh, the U.S. Got it. So if I'm a, if I'm a mid-sized company and I wanted a, a fancy tele- telephony solution to come into my company, so hook up my network with my phones, you, you do that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We were uh, the strongest probably in the 1,000 to 5,000 employee uh, uh, size range and uh, multiple locations was a specialty of ours as well as uh, call centers and unified communications uh, software. Got it. And you had a 17-year run in this business before you sold it? Yeah, sure did. Yeah, it started by myself and just grew it piece by piece and then ultimately decided to, to sell it for a number of reasons. I want to get to those reasons in a moment. Just before we get there, though, just give us a sense, if you could, of, of the size of the company, either revenue or proxy, like number of employees, just so people get a sense of what what size of business it was before you sold it. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, I believe when we sold, the, the revenues were around $23 million annually. Um, we had uh, – Four, four, three or four locations. Um, hard to remember now. It's been a while. Uh, and uh, we were about fifty-five employees. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. And so, what was the you know what was the trigger? It sounds like you were on a great run. Zero to twenty-three million in seventeen years is a pretty good growth rate. So, why did you want to sell? Well, a couple things, um, and, and uh, certainly not to be controversial toward the manufacturer, but um, uh, Avaya had come from Lucent, had come from AT&T, and, and I was personally not convinced that, um, that, the, that the company was well positioned to move forward. Um, I thought that they were going to struggle, and our wagon was sort of hitched to that horse. Um, but I think more importantly, uh, I saw the, the change from the traditional uh, TDM architecture is, is what it was called, uh, selling PBXs and closed system architecture phone systems. You're, uh, you're losing me on the technology there. So those are... Oh, sorry about that. No, that's uh, okay. So what, what do you mean by PBXs? And I mean, just for folks who don't know what that those are. Well, I would say prior to uh, probably 2000, when uh, a company would put in a, uh, a computer system and then alongside that, they would put a, a phone system in. And those two entities did not talk together. 
Um, and then in about 2000, we started to integrate the, the phone system with the computer system uh, with the invention of IP telephony. And as IP telephony, internet protocol telephony, as IP telephony came in, um, you know, you start to integrate your phone system with your computer system and you get things like unified communications where your voicemails, your faxes, and your incoming emails all end up in one basket. And then you can also reply to all of those via the telephone. Um, so it became a much more complex environment, uh, which also meant uh, new competition from big companies like Cisco Systems, from Microsoft. Um, you had small companies coming out of the woodwork saying, well, you know, voice is nothing more than an application on the network. So uh, it, it just became a very confusing and difficult environment. And uh, I was not 100% confident that uh, I wanted to be in that business uh, forever and ever. So talk to us a little bit about being, uh, being Avaya's sort of hitched, if you will, to use your expression, to the, the Avaya wagon. I mean, did you also resell... Uh, you know, hardware from the likes of Cisco and, and some of the other major players, or were you exclusive to Avaya? Well, we tried. Uh, it was very, it's a very good question. Um, we tried to branch out. We tried, you know, I, I never wanted to be simply a, a, a one-trick pony, so to speak. Um, and uh, so we, we tried to, set, to, to start up a Cisco um, call manager and, and voice practice, and we tried to start a Siemens um, product, uh, German product uh, voice uh, practice. Uh, but what we found was that we really needed to double or triple our infrastructure to do so uh, because the sales team typically was very, you know, comfortable, happy and happy selling what they were selling, as were my technicians. And so, like it or not, uh, because we had grown our business with one brand uh, from zero to 20 million, call it, um, it was very difficult to take on another brand. So uh, that's, that's, in essence, what happened. You said there were a couple of reasons to sell. One was that that the landscape and being tied to Avaya, what were some of the other reasons? Well, one of the reasons, again, was the, the whole uh, IP telephony uh, shift and the shift of voice over IP. And I just saw, I think I first saw a commoditization of the telecommunications, um, both the equipment and the software coming. Uh, and a substantial portion of our profits was coming from markups on additional parts and additional equipment from uh, additional software and software upgrades and the labor that was related to that. And I just saw so much competition coming in once the voice communications piece was opened up to data vendors as well. Uh, I just didn't see long-term profitability. Got it. So take, take us inside the negotiation itself. So you make this decision to sell. What happens next? I mean, do you hire a banker? Do you, do, like, how did you actually go about marketing the business for sale? Well, it's a very. There's actually a step in between that, and I think it's a great question. Um, so the step in between was I had never I had never sold a business before, and I didn't know what I was doing. So I, unlike many people, uh, decided that I wanted um, to put together an outside board of directors, and so I began to look at the facets of my business, and I knew that I needed. Um, I, my initial goal was to have five people on the board, right? So I wanted um, a sales and marketing uh, influence that could help us position the company. I wanted a technical influence who would have uh, knowledge of the industry and knowledge of the other players in the industry. Uh, I wanted a financial and operational or an operational guy who could really help me clean up the books and, and streamline the operations and put the right uh, policies and procedures in place. Um, the initial thought was maybe I was going to raise money to do some acquisitions, uh, which ended up not being the case, and then I would take the fifth seat. So when I filled the sales and marketing seat and the operational seat and the technical seat, and I was the fourth person on the board, 
I brought in my chief operations officer, uh, who was kind of my right-hand man at the business, and I sat down in front of the board and I said, um, uh, my initial thought was to build this business and to uh, raise some money uh, and to go out and do some acquisitions, but um, I believe that maybe selling this business is uh, a good possibility as well. So uh, I think that was a, an important, important step because these guys had been there, done that in terms of, um, you know, seeing businesses sold and bought and, and been part of the acquisition process. And what was the board's re- reaction when you, uh, when you made that announcement? Well, I think they were uh, pretty uh, objective. They said, well, if that's what you'd like to do, we can certainly help you do that. We've been through that. And uh, one of the first things that they said was, it's, t- you know, let's, let's clean up the operations. Uh, let's cut out all uh, frivolous spending, if you will. Let's let's really uh, limit our spending on infrastructure. Let's limit our structure or, or our spending on um, uh, expansion and marketing. And let's really, really see how fat we can make this business uh, from a net profit standpoint. And and so we've got thousands of questions around that. But tell me about the board of directors first of all. So were you did you recruit them with this idea that you wanted some help with the you know preparation to sell? So you did you recruit them for having experience having sold a company? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what I was looking for because I, you know, I, I knew that this was going to be one of the largest transactions of my life. So I didn't want to make the mistake of just going into it blind and and you know getting ripped off or, or getting uh, uh, taken advantage of. Um, you know, when my acquisition partner came along, uh, so I, I really wanted that experience and I wanted that I wanted them to have. I, I wanted outside guys with experience to have a vested interest in the outcome. So that's my next question is, so how did you recruit them? I mean, what was the compensation? Did you give them shares? Do you pay them for their time? How did you compensate them? Uh, good question. Uh, so I, first of all, used a, uh, a recruiter. Um, I used an executive search firm that, had, um, that I had used many times before. Um, it located here in San Diego, and she had done a great job with me helping build my management team uh, in recruiting executives. And so I told her that I wanted to put together a board, and she agreed to help me with that. So um, she brought uh, the people to the table. I, you know, keep in mind, I already sort of knew the types of experience that I was looking for, meaning the sales and marketing, the technical, the operational. Uh, and so when she brought these candidates to the board or, or to me, uh, we interviewed each other, saw, you know, decided if we liked each other, if we thought we, we could do some good. And I think I paid $1,500 per quarter for an afternoon meeting. So the, the meetings were once per quarter in an afternoon. Uh, on site at my location, I paid reasonable travel expenses, and I gave each one of them a half a percent of the company in phantom stock. And how did the ha- phantom stock work? I mean, was it uh, became valuable in the event of a liquidity event? Was it did it have any liquidity outside of, of the sale of the company, or maybe just talk a little bit about the phantom stock? Sure. I, you know, Phantom Stock seemed to work for me. Um, I, I used it uh, prior to the board uh, with some key employee retention, um, you know, with some key salespeople, some key uh, software people and, and operational people, as well as my CFO. And, and so we had a Phantom Stock program in place. And, and essentially all it is is a promise to pay uh, if we get acquired or if a change of ownership in a substantial way happens. And, you know, the beauty of it is that it's a very sort of informal program, but it's a written promise to pay such that if I sell the business, then you're going to get your percentage of the total sale price of the business and you'll get paid out the same way as I get paid out. So essentially, whatever I negotiate for myself, you'll share in a percentage of that. Got it. And did you uh, write that phantom stock with the help of a, a legal representative, like an attorney that you work with? Yes, I had a business attorney write it up for me. Yeah, Got absolutely. it. 
Got it. Okay. So, so you've got the phantom stock in place for the board. Uh, you're paying them for their time uh, on a quarterly basis. And how much time did you work with the board be- between the time you recruited them and the time you actually sold the company? Gosh, they were. Uh, I brought them on at the end of 2004, and we were having a difficult time. Uh, the dot-com bubble had burst, I think, in 02 or 03, and so a lot of our traditional customers that had been purchasing a lot of equipment um, had stopped purchasing equipment, and so there was really a lot of turmoil in my business. And, and so I used the board to really help me turn things around and to um, create uh, recurring revenue streams with my company, uh, meaning maintenance programs. There's a lot of value in that long-term contractual relationship with the customer. Uh, And I used them to help me uh, call through my uh, management team to make sure that I had the right managers going forward that were also sort of of pulling their weight. And so they really helped me sort of streamline the business, get it pointed in the right direction, build the profits. And we worked on that for probably... I would say it took two years, um, and then we had our first company that came along to acquire us. Uh, to acquire us. Got it. And before we get into that, just talk a little bit about why you didn't uh, work with a management team. Because a lot of times when we talk to people, entrepreneurs who have sold a business, they do exactly what you did, get the business ready to sell, kind of get you know the operations in order, get the recurring revenue structured. But they're not working with an outside board. They're working with their, their management team. Uh, why did you choose... To, to have the kind of additional layer of the, the outside advisory board rather than just turning to your ops guy and your CFO and say, let's, let's get this puppy ready to sell? Well, I think um, the main reason is that none of my management team at the time had been through uh, an acquisition. So while they were very good at doing what they did, I had a technical, uh, technical services manager, I had an operations manager, I had a CFO, um, I had a managed services manager, I had a sales manager. All of these people were very, very good at what they did, but um, never had they prepared a business for um, acquisition. And so that's when I knew that I needed outside help. Got it. So you work with the advisory board for a couple of years and then walk us through the actual transaction itself. Did you take the business to market or did you get some inbound inquiries from, from folks? How did that work? Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll skip a short story that I don't think really adds anything. We were actually in diligence with a, a company that had a, had, uh, was looking for somebody like us, and uh, we were in diligence for about three or four months, um, and it just didn't work out. They ended up having other priorities, and so we, we fell out of diligence. Um, and at that point, um, uh, we decided to hire a broker. And so uh, the broker came in, and uh, he was recommended by one of the board members who had worked with him before. Uh, so again, another trusted source who had been there, done that. Uh, and he sat down with me, and, and he prepared a book uh, on the business, what we called you know, the book or the Bible of the business, uh, essentially to say, here's what the business is doing. Here's the, here are the demographics here of, the, of the customer base. Here's the market that they play in. Um, here's how the company is set up operationally, financially, uh, sales-wise. And uh, essentially, I strategized with um, Kevin, was his name. I strategized with Kevin on these might, you know, these companies might be some good acquisition targets. These types of companies might be looking for an expansion either to the West Coast or an expansion in their core competencies. And so we developed a, a couple of target lists based on that. Got it. And then, so how many companies do you think were on the original long list of, of potential strategic acquirers? Uh, I think potential strategic acquirers, we probably had 15 companies that, that, were, that looked pretty good. And then, um, you know, the financial buyers was a whole different story. Um, almost anybody could have played in that game, including private equity. 
Uh, but we really focused on the strategic buyers because we thought the value would be better with uh, with those guys. Got it. And so then walk us through. So you've got this long list. Um, I'm assuming some folks expressed interest and, and uh, signed an NDA and you, you entered a bit of a dance with them. How, how many folks were you sort of negotiating with before you signed an LOI? Uh, good question. Uh, so we, uh, out of the out of the fifteen or so that we looked at, um, uh, we came back. We had uh, about five that expressed some interest, and I went, okay, well, this is pretty good. Um, and then as we started to press a little harder and and find out if people were really serious and if they were if they were valid buyers, meaning we thought they had the financial wherewithal to to uh, to purchase us, uh, we narrowed it down to three. And those three got pretty serious. Uh, I, I remember having several meetings with each of the CEOs and, and uh, having operational meetings with my COO and their COO. And so uh, that was a bit of a dance. That probably lasted, um, oh, I would say three to four months um, where we were talking with all three companies. But then, then there was just one that stood out just a little bit from the other ones in terms of not just the deal, but in terms of the the philosophies, the management uh, philosophies, the culture, the go-to-market strategy. So I felt like the greatest chance of success was with a larger company that was similar to the way we like to operate. And so how did you tackle this issue of, in your mind, the industry's dying, you know, Avaya maybe not doesn't have the right strategy. I mean, you're bailing out, but trying to convince others that there's a reason to, 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 to kind of double down on this market. So how did you the dance around the, that question of what, you know, the technology and whether Avaya, you know, has what it takes to get to the next level? Well, really, it goes back to something that you asked me earlier, which was that we have other products to sell. And I think the, the successful going forward business model uh, at that time, and I'm talking 2007, 2008, um, was really to, if, if you couldn't expand from Avaya into Cisco and Siemens and other telecommunications providers, then what you wanted to try to do was reduce your reliance on the main manufacturer by uh, focusing a lot on your own services, um, adjunct uh, products, uh, third-party products and services. And so you tried to insulate yourself as, as much as you could by capturing more market share inside each enterprise customer that you had. And so we had had some success there, but one of the key things that really gravitated, that I gravitated toward this, this the ultimate uh, company that ultimately acquired us was that they had made, a, I think, significant process, uh, progress, sorry, um, with some of those other third-party companies, and they had done a lot more in terms of becoming a full, really what's called a systems integrator, uh, surrounding a voice platform rather than just um, dealing with just Avaya. So I think, um, you know, I they looked at us and said, gosh, these guys have some great accounts. They might be doing 80% Avaya business and 20% with the other stuff, but with all of the other resources that we have, and their West Coast location, we feel as though we can penetrate those accounts to a deeper level, bring more solutions to the table, and more revenue and more profit. Got it. So you go into into more formal negotiations with this one vendor. Did you sign a, a letter of intent giving them exclusivity while they did their due diligence? Or Yeah, we did. Absolutely. Um, so that was, uh, I met with them face-to-face, actually, funny enough, at an Avaya conference. Uh, and this was, uh, as I recall, maybe September of 2008. Interesting and, time of year. <laughs> uh, uh, yep, yep. And and uh, in fact, I had been in New Jersey, so yeah, was, that was right after the you know the whole financial crash. But uh, I think um, we met. Yeah, it was the end of September, early October, and he liked us. I had known him for a while. We had already talked several times. As Who, I, as who's I, him? 
Uh, this was the CEO of, of their company. Okay, got it. And so we had met, and finally I said, look, here's what I'm looking for price-wise. Here's why I think it's a great idea. Here's what I like about you guys. There seems to be a cultural match. And uh, he agreed, so we, we agreed on a price, and he said, I'll have my people send you an LOI uh, next week, which happened. And so talk about the, the price. You know, you, you came up with a number. Sorry, what was the number? You don't have to share with the exact number, but uh, like um, in terms of a multiple of EBITDA, what was the price you were looking for? Well, you know, a lot of um, this is a sales and service company. So we, we didn't have intellectual property. We're not manufacturing anything. We're essentially a value-added reseller where we, you know, consult with you, uh, meaning the customer on, on what type of system that you want. We go and buy that system and software, uh, mark it up, resell it to you, provide the, our wraparound services and then our ongoing maintenance uh, programs to keep you up and running. And then when you want to grow your business beyond that, then we can consult with you further. Um, so uh, what I saw in the industry was typically three to five times EBITDA, um, and it was it was more times EBITDA for those companies that had longer term contracts, meaning maintenance contracts or exclusive uh, volume purchase agreement contracts, things like that. So um, we got about four times EBITDA for the price of our business. And was that the number that you shared with, with the CEO at the Avaya conference? Did you tell him you wanted to get four times? Yeah, I told him. I said, uh, I don't, you know, I'd love to get five, uh, you know, but I, I certainly would not accept any less than four. And then walk us through the, the, the dance at that point. Did, did, was the LOI as you expected it to be, or were there, were there things in there that, that didn't quite match what the conversation you had with the uh, CEO? Well, um, I, I would say that um, the LOI was exactly what I expected, and the people that purchased me had, um, you know, they we dealt with a lot, you know, there was a lot of integrity there, um, there was a lot of trust there, and I think they did a fantastic job. And, you know, again, I, I think that goes back to the diligence that we did before that, that said, okay, we, you know, our goals and, and our values kind of align with the way they want to do business. So, you know, the dance really led to that. It was no surprise that the LOI said what, what we had discussed. Um, there were a couple fine points in the negotiations. Was this going to be an asset purchase? Was it going to be a stock purchase? And that affected some tax issues there. So you have to be careful on those. Can you talk uh, a little bit about what you wanted and what they wanted and where you, you ended up on the question around stock versus asset purchase? Well, I think most acquiring companies want to avoid a stock purchase just in case there are any liabilities or, or potential liabilities or hidden liabilities out there. Uh, I was confident that there weren't. Um, you know, so so I'm sorry, most 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 uh, acquiring companies want to stay away from that stock purchase. Uh, they prefer to do an asset purchase. Um, and then, uh, but I think from a tax perspective, I, you know, we wanted to do a stock purchase because it was just going to be, uh, you know, save us some tax money and a little bit more advantageous to do that. Um, so, you know, that was a negotiating point. And then one of the other minor, I think, negotiating points was the value of my inventory. So, uh, you know, as you can imagine, in a, in a parts, a telecommunications parts business, you know, you've got a lot of equipment on the shelf that you have to have for your warranty programs and service programs. And so when it came to valuing that equipment, uh, number one, I think he really didn't need as much as I had, uh, which makes sense because he had his own parts depot. And so we had some arguments uh, about that. But, you know, by and large, um, it was it was a smooth transition. How much larger was the acquirer? You were 23 million. I mean, what were they doing in terms of top line revenue? 
I think top line revenue at that time, he was probably 150 or 170. And of the four times EBITDA that you settled on in terms of a price, uh, what proportion of that was at risk in some form of earnout or you know management contract, or, or was that all up front? No, it was a great uh, it was a great structure actually. Um, and he and I went back and forth a few times because I think he wanted me to be happy, and I wanted to be you know I wanted him to be happy as well. So we both had you know we tried to have each other's best interests in mind. Uh, what we ended up doing was about forty percent of the agreed upon price in cash up front, which was nice. Um, and then we had forty percent of the agreement or of, of the purchase price that was in a three year note payable. Um, and it bore a, a minimal amount of interest at that time. I think it was maybe three or four percent interest, and that really wasn't the point. But um, so we got forty percent up front. We got forty percent in a thirty-six month note where they paid every single month, and then twenty. The, the remaining twenty percent was at risk on, on, you know, on an earnout type program. If you do this, then you get this. That kind of thing. How long was the earnout? Um, I think my employment agreement and my earnout was two years. And did you stay through the two years? I did. Yeah, I stayed through the two years. Yeah. And hit the number? We did not hit the number. Um, and I think that's often the case. Um, you know, we hit part of the number, and so we had some partial payouts. But uh, I think, you know, the other, the other thing that might have been a problem at that time was the general slowdown in the market um, after that uh, financial crash of 08. So our, our deal was finalized in April of 2009, and uh, it was a difficult business environment, I think, especially in technology. And so, I mean, if you had it to do all over again, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a tremendous uh, exit. You had tremendous respect between you and the CEO of the buying company. I mean, lots of things went right, but I'm sure there were uh, one or two things that you might, you know, take a mulligan on and do over. What, could you point to one or two that might that you might do differently had it had you? How does it do all over again now? Sure, sure. I mean, I liked the overall structure of the deal. Um, I liked, um, you know, the, the way the payout worked. Uh, what would I have done differently? Maybe if I could have negotiated, um, you know, instead of 40, 40, 20, maybe I could have done 45, 45, 10 uh, and had a little bit less money at risk. Because I feel like, you know, sort of once your company has taken over, and once the integration process has taken place, you really are in a very limited capacity to have any control over outcomes. And so I think the less money you can put at risk, the better. And, and I don't think either one of us ever saw me as being an ongoing member of his management team. So uh, I, I think in that particular situation, had we been, you know, had I been frank, I, I probably would have pushed for a little bit less of, a, of an earnout. When you talk about your conversations with the CEO. I, I, I find it interesting that you're not talking through your broker, uh, or maybe you are. Were you talking directly with the owner when you're negotiating the finer points? Is the broker that you hired still sort of in the go-between position? Oh, no. I mean, the broker was involved, and, and we had an M&A attorney for some of the finer legal points and, and liabilities and assurances and represents, you know, reps and warranties and all that good stuff. But um, I think when it got down to some of the more technical stuff or the the inventory questions, um, uh, talking through the broker would have spent probably valuable time uh, that we didn't need to spend. So there were, uh, I guess during that whole process, you know, our M&A attorney and our broker were involved. Um, and so, so I knew what to go to those guys on and I knew what I needed to just kind of talk with the CEO about. 
Gotcha. And did in, in diligence or even before diligence, I mean, did the issue that you were so dependent on Avaya as a supplier, did, did that come up in negotiations? Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, obviously, I saw it as a weakness and uh, the buyer saw it as a weakness as well and a risk. Uh, so uh, that was one of the things that, that drove, the, I think, the buying price from the five times EBITDA down toward the four times EBITDA. Uh, but on the other hand, that's why I was selling. And so realistically, um, I had not built out the uh, infrastructure for the adjunct products and services that, uh, that he had. And I think uh, he, he knew that and, and felt like he could do it with my company, but it was going to be a lot of work. To what degree did life stage for you personally affect your decision not to make that double down investment to broaden? Because it sounds like to go to Siemens and, and, and build out a whole Cisco platform, it was almost like starting an entire another business. You'd have to hire new salespeople, new technical people. I mean, to what degree did your life stage, what you wanted to do with the rest of your life, affect your appetite to to make that investment well okay that's a that's a very loaded question so first of all um i didn't get into this business i didn't get into the telecommunications business because i was a a technology guru um i i wasn't excited about um you know the way telecommunications worked and the technical advances and oh look at this new feature that you can do with this software that just wasn't my thing my thing was more I wanted to solve problems for business customers. I wanted to save them money. I wanted to earn long-term trust and and uh, and and service uh, contracts with these guys. And then I really wanted to become a, a trusted part of their telecommunications, you know, company and or their supplier network. Um, and I just wanted to do a better job than a lot of my competition and, and companies that I had worked for prior. So I think that was one. I, w- I wasn't thrilled with the whole telecommunications market. And I think when I looked ahead at IP telephony and voice over IP, I thought, you know, this is going to get very complex very quickly with a lot of new players in the market and declining hardware and software margins, and it's going to get ugly. And I'm not thrilled about this business. So that was one. Uh, number two, I think when I was about 40, no, it was, it was when I was, I was 10 years into the business. And I was coming up on my 40th birthday, and uh, so I started, I started at 28, uh, the business at 28, and I was coming up, there was kind of a milestone. I'm 10 years into this business, I'm going to be 40 in a year or two, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Do I want this telecommunications company to be my entire career? And I just decided, because sometimes you just make a decision, that no, I, I wanted to sell by the time that I was 45. And I just threw that out there as a goal and said I'm headed in that direction. Hmm. So, so that was number two. Uh, and then number three was um, I, I was struggling uh, terribly with my marriage and I wanted to get a divorce. And so I knew that getting a divorce and keeping the company uh, would essentially enslave me in that company forever and ever to pay support and earn outs and all that good stuff. It got very complicated very quickly. Um, and so I said, you know, if we sell the asset, we can we can split the proceeds and we can each go our separate ways. Fascinating how life stage, you know, everything other than the business also plays a factor in these things. Oh, sure. What are you doing now? Well, good question. Uh, you know, being the sole owner and, and operator of a business over a 17-year period is is one of the things that I became acutely aware of is that, uh, number one, there are some great rewards and I certainly can't take anything away from that and, and made a bunch of money and, and lost some money a couple of years. Um, but it really is very lonely at the top. 
Uh, and so after I sold my business, I just decided that I, uh, oh, and, and complicate that just one step further with the fact that I had two kids that were sort of late elementary school, middle school. And so I knew that I wanted to be around and not, you know, for my kids through high school and middle school, right? So I, I didn't want to start another company and go all in and 60 to 80 hours a week. And maybe that 60 to 80 hours a week had contributed to the failure of my marriage because I was gone so long. So I really decided that what I wanted to do was become a, uh, an investor, an advisor, uh, a leader, a board member in several different companies where I could invest some money. I could have some management influence or maybe a board position um, and then help other entrepreneurs grow their businesses and then try to create for myself a, an income stream out of these other businesses. So um, it's, it's been successful. So I'm, I'm a part owner of a, a boat, a sailboat and powerboat dealership uh, here in San Diego, which is going gangbusters and doing very well. And of course, it's a value-added reseller, just like the telecom business, except we're doing it with boats. So it's the same business model, oddly enough. Um, and I started a finance business to go along with that, to finance the boats and, and to provide some inventory flooring. Um, and then I've got my consulting business, businessbyday.com. Uh, so I've been doing some group coaching session, individual coaching sessions on that and the podcast, uh, five minutes to a performance business. So I've enjoyed that. And that's been a, a small revenue uh, maker, but mostly it's just been exciting to, to meet so many great entrepreneurs and help them. And, and then go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I think you were going to say one final thought in terms of oh, uh, your... Yeah, and just the last business is uh, some friends of mine asked me to get into a salon suites business, which I knew nothing about, uh, but I trusted these guys and they had good experience and they had done it twice. Uh, and so I said, well, I'll certainly look at the model. And the more I talked to them, the more I liked it. And I think it's an industry changer for that salon industry. So I jumped into that, and we're opening up our second franchise in Huntington Beach uh, at the beginning of next year. Wow. So you're living the life. You've got your toes in lots of different areas. Where, where do people get in touch with you, Rick, if they want uh, more information about what you do? Oh, gosh. Probably the easiest one is just my website, businessbyday.com. There's a contact form on there. Um, you can email me there at rick at businessbyday.com. Um, but that's, that's where you learn a little bit more about me and, and my story and, and what I'm doing today. Rick Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me on, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening. <laughs>